So when I was in eighth grade, the Taliban shut down my school, and unfortunately, a lot of other schools had also been closed. And so um, I didn't want to believe that that was the end to my education. This episode of Beyond Aporia originated in the Howenstein Center's webcast, Lunch and Learn with Gleaves, available at www.gvsu.edu hc. Hi, and welcome to the Howenstein Center's online program, Lunch and Learn. I'm your host, Gleaves Whitney. The United States is still involved in the longest war it's ever fought almost 19 horrific years in Afghanistan, a country that no one really ever conquered despite Alexander the Great's and British Empire's pretensions of having done so. One of our leadership candidates in the Peter C. Cook Leadership Academy grew up in war-torn Afghanistan. Freshta Tori John knows world historic tragedy and triumph firsthand. Freshta is a bilingual student enrolled at Calvin University where she studies international relations. She will share how her personal journey through terrorism, poverty, and injustice has strengthened her resolve to be the voice for those who are not able to share their stories or benefit from the opportunities she has had. My conversation with Freshto will go about 25, 30 minutes or so, followed by questions from our viewers. Feel free to begin sending your questions to us right away using your Zoom toolbar to do so. Thank you for being my guest today on the show, Freshto. Yeah, thank you, Gleaves. It's such an honor to be on here. So thank you very much. Well, it's an honor to have you. You know, Freshta, you've had such a different life compared to that of most Americans. Your earliest memories were formed in the crucible of war in a country many Americans have little familiarity with. Tell us what Kabul, Afghanistan, was like to grow up in. Yeah, um, you know, I guess childhood was, um, it had, it definitely had its fun times and its, um, not very, so very fun times. I remember um, just, you know, playing out in the streets with all the kids in the neighborhood and at times running on different uh, rooftops to go catch different kites. And, um, and even, you know, going to school with a lot of other girls who were having a lot of different struggles back at home. Um, and, you know, it was very hard um, as a girl growing up in that kind of society, um, because you constantly face harassment and persecution and all, um, all types of oppression. And, you know, and that on top of that, being from the ethnic minority, the Hazaras, that made it even worse. I remember, you know, going to school and I, my teachers were from the uh, majority ethnic groups and they weren't the kindest. And, you know, no matter how hard I tried at school, no matter how um, much effort I put into my projects, I would always, you know, receive bad marks and bad grades. And that was only because I belonged to the ethnic minority. And then I would go home with um, bruises on my hands and my hands bleeding, my arms bleeding. Um, and so, and then on top of that, I remember like other days just going to school where I would be stopped on the way by, um, you know, other boys in the neighborhood or even other men who already had their own families, wives, children, young daughters who felt that they had the right to, um, uh, to harass me, um, you know, and so I guess there were 
just a lot of those different experiences um, just made me realize that, you know, like, it's really hard growing up there as a woman. So did you grow up in a, in a neighborhood where other people from your ethnic group also lived? So you had at least each other? Um, yeah, so the neighborhood I did grow up, it was, um, it did have, it was kind of, I guess, a mixture of all ethnic groups. Um, so my ethnic group did um, have a small community there, but it was also surrounded by other majority ethnic groups. And so in, with that, with us still having each other, it was still hard to interact with the rest of the groups. Well, why was there so much tension between your ethnic group and say the more dominant ethnic group around you? Yeah, um, so it, it goes way back to, you know, just the beginning of Afghanistan, how it was formed in the first place. And so, you know, with our ethnic group, um, so the Hazaras belong to the Shia sect of Islam. And so, and then under, under that, there we have very different ideologies. So if you look at the Hazara group, ethnic group, you know, we allow most of our women to, you know, have jobs, get an education, whereas it's very different with the other ethnic groups there. Um, from what I experienced back at home, they're very strict when it comes to allowing their women to even step into public and having and serving in roles um, that that requires them to be outside of the house. And so, um, you know, and there's always been this big shift, this big tension between the Shias and the Sunnis. And um, on top of that, Hazaras have always seen so much persecution and oppression and for really very um, irrational and unreasonable reasons. And so the biggest one is that we look very Asian. And that is because when our ancestors first came to Afghanistan um, and conquered the land, and we were really the first ethnic group there. Um, we're descendants of the Mongols. So when Genghis Khan came there and conquered it, um, so, you know, he left a bunch of his um, conquerors and there. And so that's how we descended from them. And so all these other groups of people started coming in as well. And, you know, I guess it's really, if you compare it to a lot of like American history, when the African-American community was being persecuted for, um, because they were thought to be biologically um, inferior. And so that's the same view that the other ethnic groups hold on my ethnic group. Gosh, and so that must have been one of the formative experiences from the earliest age, you were aware of being different Mm -hmm. And uh, the other Shia in, in your neighborhood were different from the dominant mainstream culture. Do you think most Americans who go over there to work and to fight are aware of these nuances, these distinctions? Um, I don't think so. I was actually um, talking about this a few days ago. It's actually very um, surprising to me with how involved the international community is in Afghanistan. And with the number, with the amount of aid that they continue to send to Afghanistan, it's very surprising that they're not familiar with the whole, um, you know, persecution of Hazaras because we used to, um, our population used to be a lot more than what it is today. And today it's under 9% of the whole population. And that is because 
we on, on like every day um the hazaras face mass executions um even when the united states came to afghanistan to um um uh i guess turn over the the whole um insurgency against the taliban when they set president karzai in throne he even put in the constitution that you know hazaras rights would be protected from then on but you know it was just put in the constitution it was never enforced and it was never really actually taken serious it was just there just so you know if the international world did look at it like why they're being persecuted then they would have something to show them that oh look we have it in the constitution but really um and, and it's really crazy because on top of the persecution that we see from the other ethnic groups and the government the taliban the, and isis and the other ethnic groups that reside there also um carry most of their violence violent actions on our group like this past weekend um you know there was um a big um attack on this maternity hospital in the hazara community where a lot of women in labor and a lot of babies were killed and shot and you know and it's just um very upsetting to me that of our leaders in the parliament continue to fail um fulfilling their promises for them it's just words and talking but you know there's really never no there's never any action and um and all the aid that afghanistan get, gets goes to the wrong hands and it's taken out of the country and invested in certain businesses instead of helping to improve the economy and employment inside the country so the aid that was sent and that was meant to be a benefit to all afghanis no matter what their background has been channeled siphoned off and away from your minority ethnic group so your group does not really see much of that aid no um and you know it's very upsetting because you know as much as my ethnic group is you know like very pro education and very pro employment and uh, and you know women's rights and everything it's very upsetting that we don't really see that aid benefiting us and our children and even in like i guess especially in our education system and you know and that's very important in developing any country any community um it's very upsetting that our um children don't see that don't have access to that resource because it's very important like in all the history books in afghan schools it always says how hazaras have always been slaves to the other ethnic groups and that they are always inferior and everything and so the new generations that you know grow up the, all they know is that you know they've always been slaves they're nothing better than slaves and so they don't really know their own history and um who they actually are and what they're actually capable of and so and that's part of all the leaders that are in the parliament who are mostly from the majority ethnic groups continue to um i guess fund systems and programs that continue to hide that from the hazaras and gain that access away from them so afghanistan really is we always hear in american media that it's a tribal country but you're also saying it's very much a country with castes yes uh, and the hazaras are the are, are they the lowest class then yes i guess if not the lowest then definitely in the very bottom and that's how you know just a lot of mistreatment every day 
how ironic since you are the ones who want the education, who want to liberate people to realize their potential. How, how sad. Yeah, definitely. So, mm -hmm. You know, I have to ask you, Fresha, is there any hope uh, among the Hazaras, your family, and others that you know, that this situation could be changed, or is it so deeply, so historically entrenched that nothing's really going to change it? Um, you know, I like to be optimistic, and I want to, and I guess I feel like I wouldn't really have the right to be optimistic if I myself wasn't doing anything, you know, on my part to contribute to changing that. So I guess like even right now, I'm actually working on creating a letter that I want to send to the United Nations about the really, I guess, the genocide against the Hazaras that they're really not paying attention to. Um, I guess like, it's right to focus on the fight against terrorism, but then also why is the attention being driven away from you know, a group that's being persecuted, like when do, will they receive the attention that they need, the protection that they need when they go extinct, when they're under 1% of the population? Um, you know, like I, I just hope like the United Nations doesn't wait until, you know, it's too late, like the Rwandan genocide and what happened in Darfur. And, um, you know, just from those past historical events that happened, like I hope that they learn to prevent this next one. I do too. You know, you have a really interesting background. Not only were you going to school when you were a girl there in Kabul, but um, from our previous conversations, I know that you were a shepherdess. Tell us what that was all about. Um, yeah, so, you know, Afghanistan's economy runs mostly on agriculture and, you know, lots of cattle and herds that I, you know, um, was around a lot when I was younger. And I remember my job as a shepherd with my youngest brother, sometimes we would have to get up really early in the mornings and take all the sheep to the mountains and um, bring them back by 9 p.m. at night. But throughout the day, just making sure that we take them, you know, through different parts of the mountains and the different uh, valleys, because there were a lot of landmines that were left from the Soviet invasion. And so we had to be really careful where we took the sheep and where we even stepped. And, um, and for like lunch, we would feed on the different plants that were, you know, on the mountain that we would find. Um, and I remember this one day, I, um, it was towards the evening when me and my brother were bringing the herds back home. But on the way, um, there were another, and there were other kids who were running, you know, their herds and some of their sheep blew up because they stepped on those landmines. And so uh, my brother and I, we were like, oh, we need to leave. And so that's one memory that I, I can't ever forget because, um, you know, I, I, I guess my parents had all, you know, had all this told us, you know, to be careful of the landmines. And so you're always super careful, but I think, but that was still like a very scary moment to even witness that happening to another, um, fellow shepherd um just seeing that happen was pretty scary freshta have you lost a lot of friends and family members to these tragic kinds of accidents and killings i have and um and it's crazy and um yeah i mean like there were times where i just uh 
you know, like I want to celebrate things and it's just really hard because, you know, like they're not here or um, it just makes things a little hard. But also, um, I guess they're also my motivation to keep going every day and to like remind me what, who I'm doing this for, why I'm doing this. Um, I guess continuing their fight that they weren't able to continue and um, like some of my very closest friends that, you know, we th that we're like a family and we thought we were, you know, going to the same school and just kind of planning our futures and we were kids. And then um, as soon as I moved to the States, the Taliban attacked their house and set them on fire and shot them. And, um, you know, just like moments like that, it just happens so much throughout my life that I'm constantly waiting, okay, like, who am I gonna lose next? Um, you know, I did like, it was my dad, it was my friends, okay, then the neighbors, then a bunch of the other kids that I went to school with. And, and so that's like one of my biggest fears that today I have a really hard time even calling my mom back at home because I'm like really scared that she won't come to the phone or, um, you know, like she won't be around for me to even like say hi. Oh, Freshta, this is uh, a, a terrible thing for anybody to go through. And I imagine for a young person whose life is still in formation, you're, you're in moral, intellectual, spiritual formation through this time. But of course, we see in you at the Cook Leadership Academy, a, a young woman who has incredible strength and resilience. So on the other side of this, you know, you're, you're doing amazing things. And we're going to get into that. I do want to move to... Um, how you got the opportunity to come to the United States. Yeah, um, so when I was in eighth grade, the uh, Taliban shut down my school. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of other schools had also been closed. And so um, I didn't want to believe that that was the end to my education. Um, <laughs> it was very hard for me to accept that I was I was very angry. Um, you know, the Taliban had already taken so much away from me, from my people, from really everyone. And so I, you know, it made me very, um, I was very angry for a long time. And so started, you know, applying to all these different schools in different countries and different sides of the world. And I got into a boarding school in Texas. And so I got a scholarship there and, um, I went to study there and leaving, but leaving my family was the hardest, one of the hardest things I had to do. Um, just, you know, leaving them when not knowing who their breadwinner would be or um, who would even take care of them, my sick dad, my sick mom, and coming all the way across the world and um, just, I guess, making, giving that up to come here because I believe that gaining my education was the right way for me to make a change in all these unjust systems, whether it's in my country or really anywhere in the world here in Michigan, um, anywhere that I'm called to. So, um, but yeah, that was definitely a very life-changing opportunity for me. How old were you when you actually came here? I believe I was around 15 when I moved here, yeah. I bet it was shocking. I mean, it's, it's such a different environment. It was, it was. Um, yeah, it, you know, it just hit me this summer that I'm here in America because, you know, all those years I was just my whole, um, 
mental mindset was just um, still going through a lot and trying to accept and making this transition to where um, I finally now can realize so much has changed and that I'm in a whole different society, new environment. Who, who did you live with, Freshta? Um, right now or when I moved? Um, when, when, you, when you moved here? Um, so I lived with my host family um, at, by the boarding school. Okay, very good. And then uh, is, is this your second host family that you're with now? Um, this, no, it's not my second, but um, it's, I've had so many different families and to me, um, you know, they've definitely been more than just uh, my host family. Um, they feel like real family to me. Um, and yeah, but I'm very, I, I met them this past summer and um, they've definitely been such big blessings in my life. But throughout, you know, since the first time, the first time I moved in with my host family, when I first came to the States, I've had multiple other families that have, you know, helped me through, um, you know, different parts of my life through all the years that I have been here. So I want to thank them all if they're seeing this. Thank you for all the um, impact you've had on my life and for always being there when I really had nowhere else to be. And of course, Fresh to We archive all of these Lunch and Learns. So even if they're not watching exactly right now, they can come back and see your, your tribute. Oh, so that's, that, that's good. So here you are at Calvin University. What are you studying? I'm studying international relations and pre-law. And what do you want to do with that degree after you graduate? You want to go to law school, but what specifically do you want to do? Oh, yeah. Well, I want to change the world. I want to make it a better place for everyone. Um, but, you know, with that, I wish I could do that all on my own. Um, I want to go to law school, and after that, um, the long-term goal is to serve in the United Nations. Um, I believe that I'm called to not just serve one country, one community, but really, um, I've, as a, a global citizen, I feel that I'm called to really fight any injustice in any system, um, and really, I guess, just on a on a international scale, and that's what I feel that I'm called to, and that's where I want to serve. That's really impressive. And one of the ways you're already changing the world, Preshta, is you've started a recent business. Tell us about what you're doing. Yeah. Um, so when the pandemic started and all the schools started to close out for the rest of the semester, um, when Calvin you know, had us leave the dorms and move back home. I was, I was just um, at home and watching the news and all of a sudden I heard on the news that the homeless have been hit the hardest by the, by the virus. And, you know, like I can only imagine what they must have been going through with, like I'm here with all these resources at my, at my hand, you know, I can shower, I have food anytime I want to. And, having, you know, tea, where they really don't, they don't even have a place to go because all the shelters have closed down. They don't have food, they don't have masks, they don't have um, any products to practice hy good hygiene. And so um, I remember that we had a big pile of goodwill clothes. And so I remember, you know, growing back at home, part of being a girl is that you're required to have certain basic skills and one of them is to sew. 
So I was like, why not use my basic skill of sewing and start making the masks? And so I started sewing a lot of masks and just taking them to the homeless downtown. And all of a sudden, all these other um, people who saw that I was doing that, they really wanted to purchase them. And they were like, please, please, we'll pay you. And everything I was like they're free and therefore the ones who really can't um, afford them but you know they were willing to pay for it and so I started I opened an online store where I was not only making masks and um, I'm making cosmetic bags and a lot of hair accessories um, and I'm trying to improve that with new products but um, with the pandemic right now my focus is mainly on masks where a lot of um, uh, customers can either buy it for themselves or they can purchase them and then I deliver them to the homeless downtown with um, different packages of food and snacks and other products that they might need. Um, so yeah, that's what I've been up to since the pandemic started and that's how I want to help the homeless community. Good for you. Oh, it's, what an inspiration. Okay, Fresha, this is the setup now. Uh, you know this question's coming. I ask it to all of our CLA alumni and people who are in the program. How has the Peter C. Cook Leadership Academy at our Hallenstein Center helped you on your leadership journey thus far? Oh, I don't know where to start in so many, so many ways, uh, Gleaves. I'm so thankful. You know, I always share about CLA no matter where I go at any conference I speak at or and any really any event that I can go to. I'm always talking about CLA. Um, you know, it's helped me in so many ways. I think I've really seen my leadership growing, but also being tested at the same time. Um, you know, like when stepping into the role of being a lead fellow, I realized how much education and time that takes, you know, where you know, like aside from the normal CLA schedule, we have to dedicate more time outside of that and really coming up with how to improve the curriculum to, um, you know, make it better for the students that we have. And um, just seeing how much time and dedication that takes has completely blown my mind. So now I definitely thank you and um, all the other staff on um, that work to make CLA better. I can definitely see how much effort you guys put into it. But you know, on top of that, really helping me to improve my professional skills, um, whether it's networking and making very strong connections that have, you know, helped me um, gain different opportunities and definitely having a mentor who helps me and walks me throughout a lot of different um, challenges that I have, but then also, you know, walking me through and helping me through to um, accomplish my goals whether they're big or small, whether it's, you know, creating an outline and um, trying to accomplish small steps. And I remember one thing that really um, stood out to me this past year was um, the, all the activities you were doing with having fierce conversations. Um, that's one thing, like in my culture, no matter how, um, how tough situations get, you never, you, it's very disrespectful to, um, disagree with an with somebody who's older or somebody that you really respect and so having practicing having fierce conversations at CLA really helped me to have combat those um, really hard conflicts and conversations with all the tools that I gained at CLA and it um, the results were great it was um, 
yeah, I was very, very thankful that we got to do that. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. And you mentioned a couple of things. I just want to clarify for our viewers. You know, we have, uh, starting this year now, a new program within the Cook Leadership Academy where there, there are two different groups. You have the CLA candidates who have already gone through a year, such as Freshta, and she is now one of the lead fellows. It's a competitive process to become a lead fellow if you've been in the program a year. And she helps guide the new incoming CLA candidates who are gonna be coming in in the fall. So uh, we're gonna, you're, you're in the pilot class and we can't wait to see how it goes. And with people as capable as you, Freshta, we're confident that this program's gonna work. The second thing you mentioned, Freshta, was about mentors. That's something we've put a lot of emphasis on in the CLA. Could you tell us a little bit more about how valuable your mentor has been in this process to you? Yeah, um, you know, usually with like with my past experience, usually when I have had a mentor, it's very formal and, um, you know, you can't really talk outside of your professional goals and everything that you have in mind. But with my mentor, you know, she was really there like when I needed to have like personal conversations with her and she was very understanding that you know aside from your work life student life there are also other things that are going on internally and so she was I guess more of a friend when I needed her and then she was also that mentor when I needed her so you know she would divide her time between the professionalism that I needed with my you know professional side of my career journey but then also um, like on my personal life when I really needed um, someone to talk to, especially like being really far from family from and on the other side of the globe, she was very helpful in, um, you know, uh, helping me combat different conflicts that I was facing and different challenges and, um, and how she was, you know, connecting me with different resources constantly and always checking up on me and um, you know, always uh, referring me to different programs that she knew I was interested in. And so, um, yeah, just having a very strong relationship with her has definitely helped me. And I'm so very thankful for you, Ali. <laughs> oh, well, we're so happy that it's worked out so well for you, Freshta. So you've been in the United States several years now. What's your favorite thing about America? Ooh, I have a lot. Um, I think one thing that I definitely uh, love has been the different celebrations. Um, it, I guess one very specific thing is the fireworks. I'm not a very big fan of the sound because it sounds like gunshots, but yeah. it's so beautiful. Um, I remember when I was little back at home, I would always see it on TV. And so I always wanted to go somewhere that, you know, had fireworks that I could constantly see and um, just really enjoy. So that's definitely been one of my favorite things. Like I feel like a kid when I see fireworks and I just want to run around and <laughs> scream and jump. Um, but on top of that, you know, just um, being able to um, reach the different opportunities that I am, that I want to um, that I want to experience, but then also seeing how I can connect like my fellows, my, um, my peers with different programs and the community and just, uh, there's, you know, so many things to do here. And there's definitely the big, um, the big joy of freedom. And that's definitely been 
something that I wake up every day and that, that helps me, you know, continue my day knowing that I, I'm not, I don't have to fear that someone's going to come into the house and shoot me because I'm a woman who's stepping out of her house to go to school or, you know, be an activist and um, speak at this conference and really talk about what's actually happening inside the country. And so just knowing that I don't have to fear that constantly and um, being able to just, you know, finally realize that like being a, what it is like to be a human, first of all, and getting to really um, realize and practice just what it means to, you know, being a human with basic rights and human rights and for those not to be violated every day um, has just been completely mind blowing. I'm just so blessed. Just, yes, a remarkable perspective. And we take these things for granted. First, what are some of the stereotypes, the biases you've encountered here in the United States? Yeah, um, I guess since I have been here, I've received like a lot of, you know, great responses, but then there's also been like a lot of pushback and opposition and, um, and a lot of it has been mostly accusations or very uneducated assumptions. And, you know, like I said this earlier, but, you know, you would think that in a country where with so much access to education that you would think that, you know, people would be very informed about what's happening, um, you know, in different sides of the world. And instead of going off of, based off of their assumptions and stereotypes. And some of the stereotypes, I guess, with like the smallest ones there, um, when I first came here, a lot of people were like, oh, you must really like hate the winter because you come from a very hot desert with camels running around and eating dates and um, speaking Arabic. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, I guess a lot of people don't realize that, uh, first of all, the Middle East doesn't exist. It was a term that was put by the British on that region. And Afghanistan is not in the Middle East. We're in Central Asia and we don't speak Arabic and we don't have camels. We, we actually don't have a desert. Um, yeah, so I guess just small things like that. But then on top of that, a lot of um, other parts that I've conflicts that on conversations that I've had are, you know, like being accused of coming here and taking advantage of all the systems and not giving back to the community. And, you know, I, I don't think that's right at all because ever since I have, you know, every community that I have moved to, I have always given back. Like here, you know, I'm not, I'm not only giving back to the homeless community, I'm also trying to make sure um, that, you know, the public schools are getting the fundings that they need. You know, I took a bunch of um, complaints that were coming from the students directly at GRPS schools and took them all the way to the D Department of Civil Rights when I really didn't have to do that. Or, you know, even when I was working at the city of Grand Rapids, we were constantly working on projects that make um, lives better for residents in different communities. And so, um, you know, just hearing that I'm here not giving back to the community is, um, I guess, very inconsiderate. And um, then on top of that, just um, saying that I, I'm not paying taxes or um, I'm getting free education and how 
just just a lot of different um, assumptions that aren't true at all. You know, uh, I was actually reading an article the other day how international students contribute millions of dollars to the U.S. economy, but then, you know, on top of that, they're also paying a lot of other finances and um, that contribute and go into the U.S. economy, and so. Yeah, but I'm not here getting a free education. I go to a private school where I'm constantly having to work very hard on top of being involved in all these um, international organizations to improve human rights and I constantly advocate for them. So, um, and I think, I guess the best way to really enter a conversation with someone that you have so many stereotypes about is probably, first of all, if you're going to enter that conversation, make sure that you have, that you're, um, that you're very informed, that you have the right knowledge and you're not entering that, uh, that conversation with a lot of like anger and stereotypes and stuff, but instead, you know, be able to be have yourself, you know, be open to be educated, but also try to educate others from the point of view that you're coming. What's the question you like getting most from an American? Ooh, um, I don't know, really. Um, I think when they ask me like what my favorite holidays are or what I, you know, really enjoy about the different um, parts of the states that I have lived in. So, yeah, <laughs> I, think, I think those are the questions I really like to be asked. What do you miss most about Afghanistan? I think I definitely miss the food, but you know, on top of that, there's a lot of other like deeper things that I do miss. Um, you know, like I, I wish that when like I would get sick that my mom would, um, you know, like, I guess when I was so in, in the dorms, it's obviously kind of hard when you're at school, but you know, on top of that, it's really hard when you know, like when you're sick, you kind of want your mom to come check on you and, um, you know, have that connection where you feel like you're constantly being cared about. So definitely missing um, having that relationship with my mom um, or even like you're really um, being able to um, celebrate different holidays that we have back at home. Um, just seeing, you know, family and friends and instead of constantly seeing like oh no you know what happened on tv or this happened but just having that um direct conversation with them and yeah just you know like the really small things that um make life so much better and um have you make a lot of memories and you, you mentioned your mom again. How's your family doing now, Freshta? Um, so I don't really have much um, contact with them, but from the conversation that I had with my mom um, a while back, she's still not doing the greatest, um, you know, just health-wise, but then on top of that, a lot of uh, security issues that are happening. And um, just a week before exams started, I found out that, um, um, one of her very close friends who who's really our was our aunt um, at that point because they were very close almost like sisters we lost her to one of the explosions and attacks that, that the Taliban um, operated in Kabul 
So, you know, that was very um, hard to hear. And, you know, my mom has been someone who has gone through so much loss. And to me, just seeing how she continually doesn't let her stop that from, you know, going with just pushing against all the, uh, all the cultural norms in the country and everything and all the community is just um, amazes me and how just strong she is. And just, she just never gives up and, you know, she doesn't let those, um, you know, like I know that she definitely hurts from losing so much, but it's still very amazing to me how she perseveres and encourages me to continue living um, my dreams, but also, you know, contributing to the society. Well, Fresh, I, I think this came from our second conversation. And when you were talking to me about your mom and I think she'd be very proud of you because obviously your strength comes from her, you know? You're very, very strong, very resilient. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we have viewers who are queued up to ask questions, and I'd like to bring them into our conversation, Freshta. And um, we have uh, our friend, good friend, Diane Jones. And she wonders, I think she's asking the same question I asked you after one of our conversations. Have you thought of writing a book at some point to share your story and to bring attention to these issues of human rights? Or at this point, is it just too dangerous for your family if you were to do so? Good question, Diane. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Diane. Um, yeah, so I actually am thinking of writing a book. It was kind of um, a project that I started um, a couple of years ago, but unfortunately, I didn't have time to finish, and I'm still also working on it. Um, you know, although it's still very dangerous for my family, but, you know, I've, I don't think that having that threat threaten me and like stop me from continuing to do what I need to do to contribute to the world. I don't think it will stop me. Um, and so, yeah, I hope that I'll be able to complete the project soon and I would love to send you a copy when that does happen. <laughs> well, send me one. <laughs> yes, um, <laughs> absolutely. You're, you're going to have, we're going to have you speak from our stage and we're going to have a whole line of people out the door trying to buy, you know, a book of yours, I'm sure someday. And oh, we have Priscilla you. Brink right in and she wants to know the name of your business as so she's able to order masks. Thank you, Priscilla. Yes. Yeah, it's called So True. Um, and the, if you want to go to the website, you can um, just go to sotrueproducts.com and you will be able to see all the different options that we have. Oh, good. So true. Obviously, S-T-W, true, right? It's S-E-W and T-R-U-E. Yeah. Yes, so. very good. Uh, Ken Ma writes, and uh, this is a multi-part question, but let me, let's, let's break it down a little bit. First of all, Ken Ma wants to say, Fresh has provided excellent insights into the history of Afghanistan and the ethnic conflict there. Her brave words of hope, tremendously inspiring. And uh, Ken Ma wants to know, are there strong voices among the Hazara leaders that are advocating for your ethnic group? And do they have a platform there in Afghanistan? Thank you for that excellent question. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much for your question. Um, you know, there are, um, I guess, a lot of activists and, but unfortunately, um, it's very hard, you know, with a lot of journalists and activists that do rise to draw attention to issues like this, they're 
you know, right away, they're immediately, they're, um, you know, threatened, and a lot of their lives have been taken away. And so it's very dangerous. And that's why we don't have too many um, advocates around this issue, because it's so dangerous. Um, and so it's, it's very sad. But I'm hoping that as, you know, the world starts to become more aware that we do have other leaders who, you know, that despite all the threats that they still continue to, um, you know, make that change and, you know, make that happen because uh, it's, yeah, it's very dangerous. And I still do like appreciate all those uh, journalists and activists that have already lost their lives. You know, um, I really appreciate that, you know, they took that step to even go that far to where they were even sacrificing their lives. Another viewer asks, Presha, first, thank you for being so honest and candid in your conversation today. I've learned a lot from you and certainly have faith that you will be a part of changing the world. With your exploration of leadership and your time here in the U.S. and within the Cook Leadership Academy, how is leadership different in the United States compared to Afghanistan? Thank you for a very thoughtful question. Yeah, um, I guess leadership here, um, I would say, so in Afghanistan, um, leadership is, it really depends like in what way you're leading. But if you are a woman um, and you're really, first of all, pushing against all these cultural norms, you're stepping over all these boundaries that your communities continuously um, finds a disgrace. And you know, at that point, your government is against you, your community is against you. It's really, really hard because you know, like even today, I continuously get all these threats on social media about how my head's gonna get cut off or they're gonna do this to me or, you know, just like a bunch of, you know, threats just because you want to make a small change because you think that your cousin or your, um, the girl down the street from you should have the same access to the same education and the same opportunities that you have. They find that as a big threat and like the, to the point where they are willing to actually take your life. But here in the U.S., I, you know, although there is a lot of opposition at times, um, I've, I've seen that, I've experienced that, you know, I get a lot more support and more um, uh, motivation. And, you know, I'm continuously, continuously being encouraged to continue and um, doing what I'm doing. But on top of that, they're also, like, you know, connecting me with different resources and different organizations and different opportunities. And so it's, I would say it's, completely opposite being leading there and being a leader here. Okay, completely opposite. Terry Allen and Sandra Allen write, this is a little bit longer, but it, it's a very thoughtful comment with a question coming. Doctors Without Borders is one group we appreciate and support. I knew of the attack, the Allens write, on the maternity hospital in Kabul. One staffer said, quote, they came in and killed the mothers. They were looking for the mothers. Close quote. Hearing about the experience your ethnic group has had gives me some insight into why the attackers were there and who they were looking for. Any experience with Doctors Without Borders when you were back home, Freshta? And thank you for sharing. Um, I actually, no, I, I personally didn't have any um, interactions uh, with Doctors Without Borders, but I know that they're doing amazing work. So I Thank them so much wherever they are and 
Yeah, thank you so much for continuously sacrificing so much and um, putting so much effort into doing what you're doing. Absolutely. Uh, we have another viewer who writes, uh, this is Jacqueline Armoyan. How can we support you and these important global causes? What can we do here at home? Mm, yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate your questions. Um, you know, I've been so blessed just um, being here. And I think one way that I would love uh, support that I can get is, you know, spreading awareness about about what's actually happening in the country, spreading awareness about, you know, the genocide that's happening against the Hazaras and, um, you know, awareness that doesn't feed into all the stereotypes about Afghanistan, but actually, um, you know, brings the more knowledgeable site into the public and where people are more educated. Um, so really, I, that's really, <laughs> I would really, really, um, love to see that happen, that change to happen instead of stereotypes that there's more knowledge and instead of entering conversations with a lot of anger and um, assumptions that where you enter a conversation with op enough, um, you know, openness to be educated and learn and then also still respectfully and help in a healthy way, um, making your voice heard. Excellent. Well, that was a whole slew of really thoughtful questions that came in. We thank our viewers. Fresha, is there anything else that you would like to mention that we haven't covered? Um, I, I don't think so, but um, I just want, um, if you guys have any other questions, uh, please feel free to contact me. Um, you know, I would be, I really appreciate all the support that I have been receiving, um, even, you know, the conversations that I have had that want to know more about uh, my work and what I'm actually doing and why I'm here. And I understand that, you know, no matter the number of conversations we have, there will always be like other questions left. So yeah, feel free to reach out and I would be more than glad to um, really um, respond and have other conversations with you. Well, thank you, Freshta Torijan, for being my guest on today's Lunch and Learn. Viewers can see why we at the Howenstein Center have so appreciated having you in our Peter C. Cook Leadership Academy at the Howenstein Center. I'd invite those who tend in, tuned in to fill out the brief survey and let us know what you thought of today's program. I also invite you to zoom in or join us on Facebook at the same time, Tuesday, June 2nd, when my guest will be Brian Bowdle. Professor Battle teaches in the psychology department at GVSU. He specializes in cognitive psychology, but he's also interested in the moral, the political, evolutionary, and cultural elements that make up the way we think. And he will share some insights into the tensions between common ground and contested ground here in the United States today. Till Tuesday, stay tuned to all of our offerings at the Howenstein Center and stay well. Beyond Aporia is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center for Presidential Studies at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. The theme music was composed by Andrew Whitney. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's legacy of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the pressing issues that Americans face. To learn more about the Howenstein Center, please visit us at www.gvsu.com dot edu slash hc. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 
Thanks for listening. This is Gleaves Whitney.